John chapter 6, beginning in verse 52, we read. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day for my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. You'll remember that this this particular section begins with a perplexing problem. It is a question. And then there's a series of promises. As a matter of fact, we can break the section broadly into two categories. The shocking debate over Jesus' words in verse 52 and 53. And then the surprising results that take place when we partake in the bread of life between verses 54 and 58. The message and meaning leaves everyone in shock. There are religious questions that begin in verse 25. These turn into murmurs and complaints in verse 41, which turns into a sort of a knack, knock down, drag out, verbal word fight in verse 52. And in the end, even Jesus' closest companions Admit that these words are hard to swallow in verse 60. The chapter causes us to ask a question and answer the question. What does it mean to be fed by God? What does it mean to partake in the bread of life? In order to be fed by God, the sinner has to come to God. We learned that in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 6. In order to be fed by God, not only must you come to God, but then we know that the God, the Father, is the person who's doing the drawing. Remember in verses 37 and and also in verse 44. In chapter 6, remember, it begins with a miracle. The miracle of feeding the 5,000 with loaves and fishes. It continues with another miracle. Jesus walking on the water. And the the children, the religious leaders and the Jews want to see yet another miracle. They want more bread for their body. But they don't really desire the bread of life. We know that it's by the word that we see God and receive faith to come to Christ and trust him. Remember, in the New Testament, it is not seeing that makes one believe. It's believing that makes one see. And so what are the practical results of partaking in the bread of life? Well, the first result is found in verse 54, eternal life. The second result is. 
is found in verse 55, enduring satisfaction. The third result is found in verse 57. We engage in activities, that is, activities that are deeply meaningful, deeply significant. Then in verse 58, the fifth result, there's everlasting sustenance. The real God comes inside of you and becomes an everlasting source of sustenance and life. But we begin with the shocking debate. Look in verse 52. It says, the Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? In the New Living Translation, it says, then the people began arguing with each other over what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. Now, the word translated quarreled in, in the New King James Version and arguing in the New Living Translation is an interesting word in the Greek language. It's in what's known as the middle voice, emakonto. It's, it's from a Greek word, makomei. Now, the word makomei was a word that meant to aggressively fight. It was usually used in the context of a physical fight. Here, it's used in the figurative sense, in the middle voice. It means to argue, but it means more than just to argue. It means, it carries with it the idea of a war of words. Have you ever been in that kind of an argument? Where one person says something, and then another person says something, and then another person says something, and another person says something, and then now both people are talking at the same time, and because both are talking at the same time, neither one is listening, and so the pitch gets higher. And it becomes more and more heated. There, there's more and more argument. And pretty soon, it is truly a war of words. That's exactly what's taking place here. Some are wondering, is Jesus speaking figuratively in symbols? Some are asking, is he speaking literally? Some are saying, I have zero idea of what he's saying. Others realize that Jesus is making an amazing statement. He's claiming to be the very source of life. He is claiming that he has come from God, that God has empowered him for all judgment. He is saying that real life comes from him and is sustained by him, that he can overcome death. The materialist and the humanist would say, how can this be? Jesus is a human being. He has a human mother and a human father. And he's grown up in a dingy village in Galilee. He is just a regular person. The observant Jew, the religious Jew, is horrified over what he's saying at the thought of the literalness of a human sacrifice and ingesting flesh and blood. No self-respecting Jew in a million years would engage in cannibalism. The religious Jew, the observant Jew, would rather die. And in the worst circumstances of the, of the life of the children of Israel, given that option of eating each other or dying, most religious Jews, observant Jews, did exactly that. They would rather die. The religious leaders are shocked. They're shocked over the claims of Christ. They're shocked over the statements of Christ. They're not simply offended they're deeply disturbed. 
And the response of Jesus, you would think at this point that he would back off. Oh, I see that I've upset you pretty much. All this cannibalism talk has pretty much grossed you out. Hey, I know. I'm going to back off. And I'm going to help you understand what I'm saying. But you know what happens in this particular passage? Jesus does not back off. He does not even back off a little bit. The words eat and drink are in what's known as the Greek aorist tense, which signifies a once and for all event. Here, Jesus isn't speaking of partaking time and time and time again. He's not talking about feasting on him day by day through prayer and Bible study. Jesus is speaking of a once and for all event that was meant to have forever consequences. You must have me once and for all. I must become the full and final source of life for you. And once again, we have an example of people misunderstanding and misinterpreting a spiritual truth by treating it literally. That's happened over and over again in John's gospel, hasn't it? In John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, you'll remember... Um, in John chapter 3, verse 4, with Nicodemus, remember, he comes to, to Jesus by night. And you'll remember Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And you remember Nicodemus' response? What are you talking about born again? How is it possible for me to go back into my mother's uterus? Doesn't make sense. Remember, he's, he's not talking Literally. He's talking figuratively. Remember in John chapter 4 when he's speaking at the woman at the well? You'll remember it's the Samaritan woman. And he asks the woman sitting at the well, give me a drink of water. And the woman says, how is it possible that you being a, a Jew and me being a Samaritan that you would ask me this question? And Jesus, remember what he says? If you knew who it was who was asking, you would ask me for living water. And remember what she said? Well, give me some of this living water. But how are you going to find the living water? She took literally what he meant figuratively. And once again, it happens again. By the way, this chapter is one of the most hotly debated chapters in all of Christendom. The Westminster Confession defines sacramentalism as this. It says in the Westminster Confession, that doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, by consecration of a priest or by any other way is repugnant, not to Scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason. The Westminster Confession rightly repudiated the view that this was speaking literally of the body and blood of Jesus. Now, remember, in Christendom, you have Roman Catholicism and Greek Orthodox and some Protestants hold the idea that in the communion service, the bread and the, and the wine or the bread and the juice literally become the body and blood of Jesus. But this passage had nothing to do with communion. Jesus doesn't even talk about communion until much later when he talks to his disciples about it. Here he's talking to unbelieving, for the most part, religious leaders. The sacramental system of Roman Catholicism began in the 12th century, and it wasn't a part of the Roman Catholic 
tradition completely until the 15th century. The ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper were celebrated by Christians since the first century. And so, as you can imagine, in the Roman Catholic tradition, in the Greek Orthodox tradition, in many Protestant traditions, they claim the body and blood. But again, in Luke chapter 22, verses 17 and 19, when Jesus is actually doing the final Passover, Jesus is physically present when he says, take this, eat it, all of you. This is my body, which will be broken for you and take this and drink it. This is my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant, which will be shed for the forgiveness of sins, that his physical body is right there, right at that moment. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches that Jesus is speaking figuratively. The Bible teaches that drinking blood was forbidden to anyone. By the way, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 4, you remember after God destroys the world and, and only Noah remains along with his wife and their three sons and their three daughters. In Genesis 9, 4, drinking blood was forbidden. In Leviticus chapter 3, verse 17, the Bible says that the life of a human being is in the blood or the life is in the blood. And so it was prohibited from drinking blood. Later, Christians in the New Testament were forbidden from drinking blood in Acts chapter 15, verse 29. And this would make no sense at all if the Jerusalem Council, even for a moment, thought that they actually ate and drank the real body and the real blood of Jesus. Jesus is using figurative language. And it's certainly made clear in the text in verses 63 and 64. If you just go right to the end of the chapter, Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I'm speaking to you, they are spirit and they are life. But look at verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. He's speaking figuratively. By the way, Jesus concedes that he often speaks figuratively. Later in John's gospel, in John chapter 16, verse 25, it says, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And so Jesus told his disciples at the final Passover, Do this in remembrance of me. If it was literally his body and his literal blood, then he should have said, do this and ingest me. But he doesn't say that. Another problem comes up when we consider that particular tradition, whether it's Greek Orthodox or Roman Catholic, when mass is celebrated all over the world. This would require that Jesus's physical body be omnipresent. That means everywhere at once. In his book, Heresies, the Image of Christ, Harold O.J. Brown writes, and I quote, in order to be bodily present at thousands of altars, the body of Christ must possess one of the so-called attributes of the majesty of God, namely omnipresence or what the theologians call ubiquity. Another theologian, Millard Erickson, says, quote, to believe that Jesus is in two places at once is something of a denial of the incarnation, which limits his physical human nature to be only in one location. The scripture clearly indicates that Christ's 
resurrected body is localized in heaven. That's what it says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. You'll remember in the book of Acts when Stephen was being stoned, he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In a biblical sense, Jesus Christ is one person with two natures. He is completely human. He is completely God. Because he is completely God, Jesus has the ability to be everywhere at once. But in his human nature and in his physical body, he's confined to one place at one time. And so the teaching of transubstantiation seems to contradict the scripture and reason. The memorial view makes much more sense. The elements are meant to communicate grace to the believer. The bread and the wine are symbols, reminders of Jesus' death and resurrection. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 and 25, our anticipation of the second coming. Jesus, the, the, Paul writes, and he says, when you do this, you anticipate the coming of Jesus, which is exactly what Jesus taught his disciples. And look at verse 53, it says, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. There's that expression again that we've seen throughout the sixth chapter. Most assuredly, verily, verily, truly, truly, Again, Jesus is drawing attention to the truthfulness of what he's saying. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He's talking about participating with Jesus at the deepest and most fundamental and internal level. Once again, Jesus declares with certainty, you must partake of him. And remember what partake here means. It means to depend upon him the same way that you depend upon food. Some of you exercise quite a bit. Some of you exercise only a little bit. Some of you exercise not at all. You can live without exercise. You can live without entertainment. But you can't live without eating. You must eat. If you do not eat, it will eventually catch up with you. We depend on Jesus the same way that our physical bodies depend on food to sustain life. We have to eat or we will die. So again, here's the question. How do we eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood? The Bible tells us that we do it when we believe him when we receive him and now when we depend upon him. James Montgomery Boyce writes, and I quote, is he real to you spiritually as real as something you can taste or handle? Is he as much a part of you as that which you eat? Don't think me blasphemous when I say that he must be as real and as useful to you as a hamburger and french fries. I say this because although he is obviously far more real and useful than these, 
The unfortunate thing is that for many people, he is much less, unquote. Is Jesus real to you? Is heaven a real place to you? Charlie Peacock sings a song, I want to live like heaven is a real place. Is Jesus as real to you as the air that you're breathing, the the seat that you're sitting on? Is Jesus as real to you as the food that you ate? Joy Davidman in her book, Smoke on the Mountain, contrasts the first commandment this way. She writes, you shall have no other gods before me. And then in her book, she turns it on its head by, by talking about the commandment this way. In the negative, it's you shall have no other gods before me. In the positive, it's you shall have me. You shall have the true and the living God. You shall have me. You see, when you have Jesus, there's a fundamental change in friendship and relationship. The real illustration would be very much like marriage. For those of you who are married, when you're single, being being married is different from being single. You girls... Up until the time that you walk down the aisle, up until the time that you make your vows, up until the time that you say, I do. Every girl has the privilege. She can go, I don't. I won't. This is a terrible mistake. I'm not going to do it. And guess what? You're not married. But once the woman says her vows and says I do and exchanges the ring and signs on the dotted line, she's married. And she takes her husband's name. And she takes her husband's future. There's a fundamental transition that takes place in identity. And the same is true when you come to Christ. And the surprising results? Look at verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. By the way, there's an interesting transition that has just taken place in the text. The word eats is different from all the other times that it appears in the text. As a matter of fact, remember in verse 50, where it says, this is the bread which came down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. And in verse 53, unless you eat the flesh. Here, the Greek verb is trogon. In verse 49, in verse 50, in verse 53, the verb is, it's an interesting word, it's phago. The shift is really noticeable in the text. Fago is the normal word that you would use to politely eat. You mothers who have children, when your child finally does get teeth, you typically say to the child, slow down, eat, chew your food, and swallow. Trogon is an, an embarrassing word for eat. If I were to translate it into our culture and society... I would use the term scarf. It's an embarrassing word because it means to eat in such a way that you eat great big chunks, large portions. In the Greek language, it meant to feast in such a way that you ate and you ate aggressively with pleasure. 
It would be the idea of you're going to an all-you-can-eat food place and you don't even bother to swallow your food. Have you ever been with someone and you watch them and they just sort of inhale it? They just go... And you go, hey, you know what? It's okay for you to pause for a moment and chew that baby up. Or have you ever said to someone, look, there's a lot more in the kitchen. Slow down. You're going to be fine. That's the word. And the tense is also different. It's in the present tense, which suggests continuous action. We're left with the impression of an embarrassing feast of large portions all the time. So think of it this way. Verse 54 says, whoever eats in large, aggressive chunks my flesh and drinks my blood in a joyous fashion has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. This doesn't sound like a tiny little wafer, does it? Here's the idea. We develop the habit of feasting on the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea is you can't get enough. A genuine believer, a person who knows and loves the Lord Jesus moment by moment, day by day, is feasting on the Lord. And the picture is a person with abundant and eternal life. It is abundant and eternal life. And then something happens People die. And people wonder. Well, does death mean then a pause? And Jesus says, no, I will raise him up at the last day. Here's the idea. Eternal life is ongoing fellowship with the Lord. Remember, we learned that in John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they will know you, the true God, and that they'll know Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Does friendship end at death? The answer is no. I will raise him up at the last day. So the result of partaking in Christ, eternal life. A resurrection. And look in verse 55. For my flesh is food Indeed, and my blood is drink. Indeed. I want to draw your attention to that word that's mentioned there twice. So that you can underline it. The word is indeed. In the Greek language, it's the word alithes. It comes from a, a root word. It's the root word of alithia, which means The truth. Now, there's a horrible movie that's come out called The Golden Compass. The premise of the book of The Golden Compass is the golden compass in this movie is called an altimeter. It's allegedly an instrument that will tell you the truth, but really it's an instrument that tells you lies. Because it's a truth, according to the author and the writer and the filmmaker, that there really is no truth, that there isn't really a God and that Jesus isn't really the Lord and that the problem isn't with sin and that organized religion is a big, fat, stinking waste of time. Here, the word indeed means true in opposition to that which is false. Now, think carefully. What Jesus is saying is, for my flesh is True food, the idea being that there is false food, my blood is true drink, with the idea being that there is a false drink, 
The things of this world do not truly feed. They do not truly fill the heart. They truly don't fill the soul. They truly don't provide satisfaction. We have a song that we sing. The things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The idea being that the pleasures of this world, the satisfactions of this world, they're temporary at best, foolish and destructive at worst. There's a false source of what we would consider permanent satisfaction. No wonder we're left empty and dissatisfied and craving and void and wondering if this world is all that there is. In the first service, I mistakenly confused Bill Russell with Walt, with Wilt Chamberlain. Bill Russell was a very famous basketball player who went to the University of San Francisco. And Wilt Chamberlain was another famous basketball player who um, I think went to the University of Kansas. I think. But he came out with a, a biography, an autobiography that, that got a lot of news. In his autobiography, Wilt Chamberlain claimed that he had 20,000 sexual contacts. Now, what was not widely reported was that he said that he would have exchanged each and every one of those contacts if he could have found one woman, just one woman that he could love and be faithful to and she could love and be faithful to him. There was a group in Southern California. It's a group of young surfer kids from San Diego County. Um, half of the kids in the band, um, their fathers are Calvary Chapel pastors. Um, they became really popular in the 90s, and I guess even now. It's a, it's a group called Switchfoot. Maybe some of you have heard of them. But they, they had a song that, that was entitled, We Were Meant to Live for, such, for So Much More. And in and, and this song... They, they basically sing, fumbling his confidence and wondering why the world has passed him by, hoping that he's better made for more than arguments and failed attempts to fly. He sings, we were meant to live for so much more. Have we lost ourselves? Somewhere we live inside. We were meant to live for so much more. Have we lost ourselves? And then the the next chorus says, dreaming about providence and whether mice or men have second tries. Maybe we've been living with our eyes half open. Maybe we're bent and broken. And they sing, we want more than this world's got to offer. We want more than the wars of our fathers. And they sing, And everything inside screams for second life. We were meant to live for so much more. I think it captures the point. Jesus is the true satisfying circumstances of life. True satisfaction, lasting satisfaction comes from receiving Jesus into your life. True satisfaction is come in Christ. Now, I want you to just do the math, and I don't mean to be rude or offensive at all. Do you really believe that ingesting a little wafer 
as it goes into your mouth and dissolves in your mouth and goes down your esophagus through the duodenum into your stomach and then is absorbed through the stomach cavity, carried by the blood and then nourishing the cells. It physically has a consequence. But does it have a spiritual consequence? If that were true, then why wouldn't every pedophile priest who takes the host day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year have everlasting life? Is every priest a pedophile? Of course not. Are there priests who are who are good men, decent human beings, men who who have a high moral standard and a great respect and commitment both to God and the Lordship of Jesus Christ? The answer is yes, but it isn't in the ingestion of a particular piece of bread or wine that creates a mechanism of spirituality. It is the real presence of a real God inside of you. No wonder Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And look at the third result in verse 56. Look what it says. It says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That third result, constant companionship, supernatural companionship and fellowship. Again, in verse 56, I want to draw your attention to the word abides. It's the Greek word. Menei, it comes from a word meaning menos. It meant to dwell permanently. Usually we have two kinds of addresses. Um, if you're visiting somewhere, you have a visiting address. And then you have a place of permanent dwelling. This is that word. It's a permanent dwelling. It means to constantly or permanently occupy. The person who receives Jesus Christ into his being allows Jesus to enter and remain in that life. And so he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood permanently remains and stays with me and in me. And look what else it says. And I in him. Jesus is speaking of a friendship and a companionship and a relationship. Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. By faith, not by religious ritual, not by sacramental ingestation. The Bible speaks often figuratively. In the Old Testament, remember Isaiah says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the water. He who has no money, come buy and drink. The psalmist says, come and taste the Lord. He's like honey in the rock. Well, does that mean every time you have a little honey with your toast that you're eating Jehovah? No, he's speaking in a figurative term. And you have constant companionship and friendship and fellowship. And guess what? It becomes the answer to that abiding sense of loneliness. Researchers say that loneliness is the number one problem that people face. 
But you have an opportunity to experience constant companionship. And look at the fourth result in verse 57. Look what it says. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus calls God the living Father. And so the fourth result is a life filled with purpose and meaning and specific significance. Look at the expression again. And I live because of the Father. What do you suppose that means? Let me help you with it. I suspect it means at least two things. Number one, Jesus lives by the Father. That is, because of or on account of the Father. His life was due to the Father. And number two, he lives for the Father in a way of speaking. Jesus lives for the express purpose of understanding, doing, fulfilling the Father's will. Did Jesus just come to the planet Earth for fun? No, he came with a specific reason in mind. He would come to live the life that you could never live, to die on the cross for your sin and to rise from the dead. God was pulling out all of the stops, all of his attributes, all of his deity. God was bringing all of his plans and all of his purpose into this one specific function that Jesus would redeem you. What does that mean to you? It means to you that as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me, not just eternally, not just salvifically, but live with a profound sense of significance and purpose. You weren't created simply to be a basketball star. You weren't created simply to be an athlete. You weren't created simply to be a businessman. You weren't created simply to be a husband or a wife or a student. You weren't created simply to make money. You weren't created simply to satisfy yourself. You were created to glorify Him. To be his constant companion. To experience friendship and fellowship. And the gifts and the callings in your life were meant to glorify him. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul writes, For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested or made known in our mortal flesh. The things that are happening to you and the circumstances that you are experiencing is so that the world can watch the reality of Jesus in you. And what does the reality of Jesus in you mean? Life. Love. Forgiveness. And the fifth result is everlasting sustenance. Look at verse 58. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who lives, he who eats this bread will live forever. Now remember what I already told you. This is the bread which comes down from heaven. The source of Jesus is heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna. The source of the manna was the sky. 
And it came from the Father. And remember what I've already told you. In the Hebrew language, the word manna means, what is it? There was a mystery associated with this bread. But Jesus says, your fathers ate the manna and are dead. You you want to know why? He's contrasting a physical bread and a physical death and a spiritual dead, a spiritual bread and spiritual life. And so that's the point that he's making. The fifth result of receiving Jesus Christ is incorruptible food within your heart, energizing you to life so much so that if for whatever reason you don't have bread today, and if for some reason you don't have water today, and if for some reason you don't have bread tomorrow, and you don't have water tomorrow, you're going to still be sustained by the very real life of Jesus because the life of Jesus inside of you means that you will live forever. Jesus is talking about living bread that energizes and makes alive in such a way that the human being can live forever. Jesus is making the remarkable claim that he and he alone has the ability to nourish and sustain Forever and ever. And that's why John in the opening chapter of John in verse four said in him, speaking of Jesus, was life and the light was the light of men. You believe him. You receive him. You depend upon him. What does that mean? What does it mean to depend on the Lord Jesus? It means that you count on him. You count on Him to control your life. You count on Him to be the source of your sustenance. You count on Him to be the power and the glory. You count on Him to be the victory and the majesty. You count on Him because He is in heaven and you are on the earth, that you are a part of His kingdom here and you're going to be a part of His kingdom there. What does it mean to depend upon Him? It means to realize and recognize That in a constantly changing world, he is the unchanging constant. The one who never changes. The one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who has forgiven you in the past and forgives you in the present. The one who loves you in the past and loves you in the present. The one who's given you life in the past and life in the present. The one who is committed to you forever. Dependence on the Lord means that you trust Him. Just like we sang in worship. Through the good times and the bad times. Paul in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14 and Acts chapter 15, he writes in detail his trials. He writes about his beatings. He writes about starvation. He writes about shipwreck. He writes about imprisonment. And at one point, he even writes about a circumstance where they all felt like they were doomed to die. And the only thing that they could count on The only thing that they could trust was Jesus. We often depend on our own abilities, our own skills, our own resources when life seems easy. And then we return to the Lord when it feels like we can't help ourselves. 
But the Bible is making it abundantly clear that you partake of the bread of life when you partake of Him moment by moment, day by day, week in and week out. And there's no substitute for prayer. Do you realize that the moment that you cry out to God and the moment that you pray to Jesus, the moment that you cry out to God, you are acknowledging that you can't and that He can. Partaking the bread of life means eternal life, a real resurrection. Partaking of the bread of life means enduring satisfaction. Partaking of the bread of life means that you enjoy the Lord. Partaking of the bread of life means engaging activities that there is true meaning, real significance to your life and an everlasting source of hope. Because one day, one day will be your last day. It will be the last day that you have a cup of tea. Is Jesus more real to you than Chick-fil-A sandwiches? Is Jesus more real to you than all-you-can-eat buffet? Is Jesus more real to you than combination lo mein? Is Jesus more real to you than half-sweet, half-regular tea? Is Jesus more real to you than pistachio ice cream? Coconut jelly beans. These are magical flavors, aren't they? But that's the point. It is the presence of Christ that is the reality of life and love and forgiveness and relationship. It can't be simply going to church. It can't just simply be religious activity. You need so much more. You were meant for so much more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray again for each and every person. For the person who longs not just for religious insurance, but spiritual assurance that the true and the living God who has drawn them that the true and the living Savior who has bought them and died for them and redeemed them and will resurrect them and will reconcile them, that, Lord, we can trust your power and the future that you have for each and every one of us, Lord, as we depend upon you. We believe you. We receive you. We depend upon you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.